Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. It is September 27, 2017. We are interviewing Alan Holstein today uh, at his house. And Alan, we're going to start by asking you why wine? I came of age uh, in a time and place in college. Uh, Napa was one piece to it. Napa was having a renaissance. It was coming of age. And America was becoming a wine drinking place. And Napa's Renaissance sort of had a spin-off effect all over the country. Um, I was going to college in Kentucky of all places, and even Kentucky had an effect or an impact of that. They wondered, maybe we can do it. And they were, um, and so coincidental to that trend or movement, there was a kind of a back to the land movement that I got involved with. Um, Wendell Berry is a famous Kentucky writer that was a big influence to me. He was a friend of my dad's, and, mm-hmm. and I hung out with him and uh, before he was famous. Anyway, um, both those things influenced me, and I began wondering. I guess lastly, um, Ken Wright, the well-known winemaker, and I were college roommates together. and. Um, we had a wild hair idea to give a wine appreciation class in the non-credit part of the university. <laughs> and we didn't know what we were doing. We just went and bought a book. And we told people we were going to taste burgundies. Okay, well, it was a way of tasting great burgundies on someone else's dime. And we're like, this is different than that. And so all those things conspired to make me wonder why one wine could be so much different than another. Here I am. And so my professor at University of Kentucky had a connection at Oregon State, and I came out to start a PhD program in horticulture. And um, you get to a point of no return in a PhD program where you're too invested to quit. (laughs) And I began looking around the landscape and saw wines being produced here that were far better than in Kentucky. (laughs) And um, it was the West Coast, after all. So I left. Oregon State and took a job in Dundee in 1980, well, years. And so what was that job? I was a vineyard manager for then Knutson and Erath. Um, Erath, Dick Erath, hired me and um, he was the man on the ground and his partner, Cal Knutson, became a mentor of mine and um, trial by fire. So as you're, you're hired as a vineyard manager, what, uh, how are you going about learning what you need to do? How are you figuring out uh, sort of your role? Well, I had an academic background in plant science, and I had worked in vineyards. Um, Dick Erath told me about the nuts and bolts, hook that tractor up to that machine and go. <laughs> and. Um, so that's where I was weak, was in mechanics. I used to think, instead of studying horticulture, I sh- should have studied Spanish and mechanics. That's what made the world go round. <clears throat> and um, the academic background wasn't that much help 
until years later, um, when people would try and sell me some snake oil, I'd say, that doesn't make any sense from a physiology standpoint. And um, so it was trial by fire um, in terms of the nuts and bolts of doing it. I didn't have a background in that, tractor repair and all that. Um, I used to have this expression that, uh, you know, a can of worms is a common expression, but in those days I felt like I had a garbage can full of rattlesnakes and it was all I could do to get the lid back on when I went home. <laughs> so were there um, specific challenges to wine in Oregon that you were not prepared for or that you were kind of learning on the fly? Well, disease prevention was one of the early ones. Um, the pioneer guys that hired me had gone to Europe prior to my showing up and they had some ideas that I was tasked with implementing. Mm -hmm. One of which was, they said, they have a system in France where they have wires on chains and they make everything go vertical. I'm like, oh, really? Well, where do you put the nails to put the wires on? Well, I don't know, split the difference. And so I think we had the first vertically trellised block on the west coast. And we eventually expanded it and it eventually expanded to the whole neighborhood and eventually um, the whole west coast. Um, what was the question, the challenges? Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, one of the biggest ones was in the understanding that we were just riding the coattails of the grapes. They were here to have baby grapes. And they didn't care as long as they achieved their end if we achieved ours. And so we failed in some years to understand how many grapes there were. On one hand, um, it was a light crop, it made good wine, it got the world's attention, but it was bad for business. On the other hand, 82 and 83 in particular, they set a big crop and we didn't have the capacity to understand how big it was and how unable we were to ripen it to our standards in this place where we planted them. It was nuts. Why these things stick in my mind, I don't know, but 81 off Knudsen Vineyards that we, um, that I was tasked with, we had 88 tons. And I got a little talking to that, you know, the vineyard had to support itself and go figure it out. So I left more buds in the pruning come 82. I, th I thought, I know how to fix this. We had 300 tons in 82 and the clusters weren't fully colored up. It was overcropped and it didn't get really to red wine standards. It was six tons an acre. We didn't know that. We looked at it in advance. Oh, a good crop. <laughs> but we didn't know how big. And 84 was just as bad. Um, 84 was the first year I bought this vineyard. It was planted and producing. I didn't get it over 18% sugar. I had guys start a second label because what do you do with this? And it's not as simple as um, 
the maximum amount you can ripen, that's an ongoing debate. Mm -hmm. What's the ideal yield in terms of tons per acre? It, we used to think it was 2.75, oh, maybe three's okay. And, and so it's an on, that's an ongoing debate, but the whole crop estimation thing, which by the way was pioneered by Steve Price down at Oregon State, um, came up with a technique that I can describe, but whatever the year is, there is an optimal yield. In warm years, yeah, you can get more. Cold years, probably need to get less. Um, but there's a logistical piece to it too, and that is the goal is to have all the grapes picked and all the tanks and barrels full. If all the tanks and barrels are full and the vineyards aren't picked, then one of the most important decisions about that vintage when the grapes are picked is determined by logistics. They can sit out in the rain for two weeks while the guys in the winery make room. You know, they have a fermenter that it has to ferment and they can't take any more grapes until it's done fermenting. Then they can press it and put it in barrels and then they can go harvest some more and reuse the fermenter. That's happened when it sat out in the rain for two weeks. It also has to fit into a sales channel that's finite and if you overwhelm that sales channel then the guys in that part of the business have to discount or start a second label and so it was really breakthrough when we could finally say okay here's the goal we want three tons an acre we have four and a half go thin it so we like to think we were improving quality and in some years I think we were but we we're also fitting it into a finite space and a finite sales channel and so that was a that took all the 80s to figure out because <laughs> um, you only get one chance to do it every year yeah yeah it's like being on a football team and you either have a winning season <laughs> or a losing season and you have to live with it all year right so you mentioned steve price at osu so tell me a little bit about the system you you, you, were, you were talking about well um it was clever observation that he concluded that from bloom until harvest, there's a very steep increase in berry weight, obviously, um, but that it was sigmoidal in nature. From bloom up to about 50 days, it had a steep increase, and when it's changing daily so much, it's hard to get a bead on it, an estimate. But after 50 days, it flattened for five to 10 days, to where you could get a reasonable estimate on it, and then it resumed its increase. And he concluded that you can take that weight at 50 days and double it, and that would be your weight at harvest. That was an aha moment. Um, and when the clusters are really heavy, they can more than double, and when they're really light, they won't quite double, and you have to know if you're in the middle of the bell curve and use your instincts and they're still arguing about it's really 1.9 or it's 2.1 <laughs> but at the end of the day there's so much variation in the vineyard when you're sampling it's hard to get a beat on it we came up with a technique that's pretty good uh, and we, we've gotten to be very good my group we can come within three percent of what the target yield is um, on whole, some fields are 10% high and others are 15% low. Okay, we spend eight and a half minutes in a field um, to do it. 
you know, a statistician would say, you're crazy. You've got to take so many more observations to have any reasonable expectation of being accurate. But there's not, commercially, there's not the resources, time or resources to do that. So we came up with a technique that sort of perfected the Steve Price technique to get a good estimate. And when we get started, we'll take a group out, some more experienced than others, and we'll do the same field. And if someone that's new comes back and they're 20% off of mine, it's like, nope, go back. You're not in the zone. You gotta, you gotta get in the zone. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta feel it and and take observations that sample all the variation while still being in the middle of the bell curve. It's fun. It's an interesting mix of art and science. Yeah, and I've done it in Burgundy and in California and different varieties in different places it might be a little bit of a variation on the theme but it gets you in the ballpark I've been in Sonoma doing those taking samples 50 days after bloom and some of the locals look at me like what are you doing I'm, like, I'm estimating the crop and they look at you like you're nuts in that environment <clears throat> if you have more grapes than you expect you go down the road and, and sell it to Kendall Jackson or Gallo at a discount life goes on there wasn't that outlet here can do it. Um, so it works in other varieties and other places to a degree and brand Oregon, everyone in Oregon is nuts about it. They've gotten good at it and um, it's been adopted in other parts of the world to some degree. So you mentioned that you started uh, Kudusini Rath in 1980 and by 1984 I think you said you had purchased. Yeah I started daylighting a little bit. Um, some of the other pioneer guys that had vineyards that didn't have wineries. I started moonlighting for them, one of which was Gary Fuquay that owned this hill. And um, I bought this piece from him. Um, and those were the wilderness days. Argyle came along in 87. And I've described it before, there was the pioneer phase. And when I started, there was 13 wineries and there was a thousand acres in the state and I was in charge of a hundred of them. And I watched the interview with Bill Blosser. There was a lot of collaboration, you know. What are you doing? How do, you, how do I do that? But at the end of the day, no one really knew what they were doing. And it was learned by experience and by mistakes, 82 and 84. <laughs> um, the second wave was begun by people who were entrepreneurial and not risk-adverse and young enough to do something else and had experience in other parts of the world um, growing grapes and making wine and realized the promise here and realized it hadn't been fulfilled. And Argyle was at the vanguard of that, as was Domaine Druin, Archery Summit, all started happening. Druin really put Oregon on the map as far as I'm concerned. And um, so that was a fun time to be here. It was like being in the little United Nations in Dundee. Um, Argyle was begun by an Australian group that had experience in South Australia. And along comes Druin uh, from Burgundy. And uh, I had the opportunity to work with the Druins for 20 years, beginning in 88. So I started with Argyle in 87, Druin in 88. And um, it was Yippie Kaye. And that was about the time when a lot of other things were happening. Um, the release of the Dijon clones happened in 89, 90. Um, 
phylloxera was, was discovered in 90, just down the hill in the neighboring vineyard. And that was hair on fire moment. And um, so crop estimation began late 80s, early 90s. Clones were technically released in 89, I think, but we could only buy 25 vines of each flavor because that's all there was. And because of my mentors had previous experience with them, they chased me off to a nursery and said, you blow those up. A lot of guys planted 25 vines for observation, and but uh, we went yippee with it. And phylloxeroos was discovered, which meant we had to start figuring out rootstocks, some of which were more devigorating than others, which addressed the problem we had in the 80s with excess vegetative vigor and too much growth. And coincidental to all that was a evolution, I wanted, about said revolution, but I wanted to evolution is a better word, with row spacing. Drew and introduced French Burgundian type row spacing that was the first of its kind in the New World, as far as I know. And um, that had a knock-on effect on my group and others, and even in California, which required more sophisticated vertical trellising. It was one thing to have rows 12 feet apart and let them flop willy-nilly, but when you had rows closer together, you had to be on it with training and canopy management. So all that was blossoming at that time. So I want to follow up with you about phylloxera, because we, of course, know that was a, the, the big scourge of that time. I'm curious, in your recollection, tell me what you remember about it being sort of discovered and then the, the, the kind of what happened afterward. Well, we were managing the vineyard. It was Gary Fuqua's vineyard after I bought this one. And so it was right there. And my Australian mentor, Brian Crozer, who um, founded Argyle, um, we were out running around the vineyards. He'd come frequently and he was a vineyard guy and we'd go run around the vineyard and there was a weak spot just above the house and he goes what's that i, go, I don't know we need a little fertilizer uh, it was a weak area and turned yellow in august mm -hmm. and it was kind of circular and um i had a garbage can full of rattlesnakes to be worried about that um he goes you better get that looked at and I'm like, yeah 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 okay okay but i think i let it go a year or so um and i fertilized it and it didn't respond and I'm like okay so I called some professors at Oregon State, and the industry was small enough then, they knew exactly what vineyard I was talking about and where it was, and they came and looked at it without me. And they said, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to be up there, we'll check it out. And um, I was driving down the road with one of the first cell phones known to man that was hooked up to the car and um, with Robert Druin on Warden Hill Road, and I get the phone call from professors that, um, that was phylloxera, and I just about ran off the road. And uh, they, right or wrong, felt like they had an obligation to inform the Department of Agriculture, and I had Department of Agriculture officials in my office next morning. And I eventually got called in on the carpet to the director of the Department of Agriculture. I forget his name, but he was the boss. And um, he, he pulled me in. He goes, 
Well, <clears throat> we want to write a quarantine order on all the vineyards you manage because it was assumed that I could have been spreading it around unknowingly. There was also an undercurrent of what's Holstein doing now? Where did it come from? There's always been a fear of someone suitcasing in an exotic pest and there were a lot of rumors, true and false. Um, but it was against that backdrop that the Department of Agriculture was reacting and I was horrified. I had read the books about how fast it moved in Europe in the 1800s and I just bought this, we just built a house. Um, I was pretty invested in Young Buck and um, I could see lawsuits or property values. I had no idea. I didn't know what I didn't know, but I was defensive. Mm -hmm. And I told the guy, look, you can write a quarantine order if you want where you found it, but leave the rest of them alone. And he goes, uh, Mr. Holstein, we have the authority to remove those vineyards if we want. And I go, let's talk. And um, I got busy. I inherently knew that the spotlight was on me. I had TV cameras chasing me around. And if I found it anywhere else, then the pressure was going to be off. And the uh, Department of Ag guys were helpful. The, the middle management um, said, well, we know the guys at Forestry. They have a plane. Let's go fly around and look. And um, they did and took pictures and came back and showed me, you know that vineyard? Yeah, I know that vineyard. Well, that looks pretty fishy. So we found it in another vineyard in Dundee Hills that summer and they found it in another vineyard down near Eugene that summer, so the spotlight was off me. Um, but for a while, I had the only flocks that were within 600 miles. And the university got involved and said, well, you need to wash your shoes every time you go in and exit a vineyard and have foot baths and wash your equipment. And the hysteria level went up a bit. <clears throat> um, in hindsight, I think it was here all along in backyard vineyards, and two bugs turned to four, and four turned to eight, and um, because where they found it were places that didn't have any common denominator in terms of plant source or management or any of that. And so there was a big industry argument about was it a three to five year problem or 10 to 20 year problem or what? And Brian Crozer, well, the Argyle guy said it's a big difference if it's a three to five year problem versus a 10 to 20 year problem. And I just had assumed based on what it did in France that it would do that here. It didn't. It turned into a 20 year plus problem. And um, we're still replanting. But based on what it did in France, it could have gone up in smoke pretty quickly. So there was a hiatus. Um, there was a recession at the time, and everyone stopped planting until like, oh, we got to figure out rootstocks. And um, Robert Druin had a book in French with a dichotomous key in it. Are you in acid soils or alkaline? Acid. Are you in basalt or granitic? Basalt. And it listed four or five rootstocks. And that's the ones we used. The, um, and are largely the industry standard today. Some were more invigorating than others. We use some that 
he eventually tore out. They were too vigorous. Um, so planting didn't much resume until the middle 90s, by which time Stoller was starting a vineyard, and um, we approached him. We were concerned about source of grapes for Argyle. It was all based on unrooted vines, and without knowing how quickly the phylloxera thing was going, we could see supply being impacted. And along comes Bill Stoller. We thought, okay, we'll manage vineyard for you and we'll buy some grapes and that'll be a way of maintaining a source. And uh, so he jumped in a big way with grafted vines and Knutson first planted grafted vines in 93 and Druin was planted grafted vines before they even found phylloxera. They'd had enough of it in France. They weren't going to take the risk. So they planted in 89 with some grafted vines, which were, some, were the first ones in Oregon. Someday be the oldest vines in Oregon. <coughs> it was a wild time. Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, I mean, that's, you, you've mentioned a lot of different vineyards that you worked with, uh, a lot of Pioneer vineyards and like say second wave vineyards. Um, sort of what were the, what made them, what was unique about the different vineyards you worked with and the different personalities you worked with? Well, there was a chapter, you know, the, the Druins were blue blood, Burgundian, traditional, experienced with Pinot Noir and philosophic. The Argyle's parent group was Australian and young Turks and aggressive and scientific. And I sort of had to pinch myself going from one camp to the other, like, okay, the French are going to be having a two-hour lunch. You can't get in a panic. <laughs> You're just going to have to relax. And, and then we go back to the Australian camp, it was like, boom, 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 boom. And um, so Stoller wasn't a technical guy. We used a lot of the same approaches that we'd used in Argyle and Druin. And the idea was to have a diversity of clones and diversity of rootstocks, and that they would perform a little bit independently of each other year to year, and that, um, particularly with clones, um, it gave winemakers more choices in blending and more layers, I think. The rootstocks had an impact too, but we um, took the lessons that we learned at Knudsen Vineyard and Druin Vineyard and propagated it all up and down the valley. Argyle eventually developed their own vineyards in 97, Lone Star, and um, then Spirit Hill. So we applied all those lessons learned in the 90s. Um, for better or worse, we moved towards higher density plantings, which seemed like a good idea at the time. But now we're in this labor crunch. It's like, what were you thinking now? <laughs> but um, it's, yeah. Um, So how did you manage that many different vineyards and that many different sort of styles? How did you keep them separate? How did you keep them unique? Well, I had site managers. At my peak, I had f four different sites, and each place had a site manager, and it was their job. I used to describe it. It was their job to keep the wheel in the truck and my job to keep the truck on the road. And um, 
So we took direction from the clients and said, okay, mostly. We argued some. Um, so yeah, at my peak, we were doing 500 acres all up and down the valley at four different locations and had 35, 40 employees. And um, it took half a day just to make the rounds. And I depended a lot on the site managers. Um, they were the unsung heroes. And, um, and the crews, we had excellent crews. And it worked. So what's your uh, grape growing philosophy and, and how did you develop it? Experience. Um, well, it's about balance. You know, we often say wine is balanced. Well, that comes from balance in the vineyard. And what's that mean, Alan? <clears throat> I gave a talk the other day where I had to think about this. You know, every plant has a balance between vegetative growth and reproductive function your tomato plant in the backyard. If you don't water it, it turns yellow and might have a bunch of little baby toma tomatoes that don't taste very good. Versus if it's located next to a, a rain gutter spout, it grows like a son of a gun and it's out of balance. So vineyards have that same balance between, and everything that we do is um, an attempt to influence that balance. Whether it's grow more or grow less, thin off the crop, estimate the crop, water, not water, cover crop, no cover crop, and um, it's like having two gauges, one's for vegetative growth and the other's reproductive function, and they have a little wire in between them, they're related, and they both respond to the environment, and the needles are going like this all the time and you're like looking at the needles and thinking about what you could do to get it to where you want knowing all the time that the environment the weather can either exaggerate or mitigate what you do and so it makes you twitchy um, but early on when in some of the successes in the 80s 83 for example that got a lot of attention and I reflected back to the vineyards. What did they look like? How green were they? How did they grow? What was the balance? And I, so I've tried to reproduce that ever since, learning lessons along the way, I guess. Um, that great growing philosophy is Mother Nature's in charge of this operation and she just wants to have baby grapes. And if we can ride her coattails and achieve our end, Good. I'll take it. And is it still evolving, the philosophy, your philosophy? Still learning? Yeah. Um, yeah, you always look to the environment, you know, and what's, what's going to happen. And, and so um, you're learning whether you made the right decision or not. Um, are there more tools and in the toolbox to affect it? No, people have been doing this since Roman times. Um, yeah, you're learning the moment. I can't tell you, yeah, here's a new technique. Um, you learn to put all these things together in a different way and make decisions to get in the way or get out of the way.
Not a very good answer, but I get it. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite part of vineyard operations? Well, I like planting new vineyards, partly because you don't have to harvest them. <laughs> That's the creative part. You know, you look at a piece of land and think, what would I do with that? And which way would I run the rows? And that's the creative part. And um, yeah, what would I what would I plant there? And what spacing? And what what's the end what's the end game? How good is this site? What's its potential? How would I do it? And so it's a you know fresh field. You can start over. And the timing of it of young vineyards is different. You can do it when the producing vineyards aren't busy, so it's more leisurely. And um, so I enjoy that. I enjoyed estimating crop. That's a challenge. And uh, you know, I sort of took it as a competitive thing. I wanted to be, give me the target, I'm gonna hit the target. And um, you feel good when, when you do that. You worked with Mother Nature. She's achieving her end and we're achieving ours. And um, enjoyed that. And, um, Being outside in a place of beauty, you know, it's, it's cool. You mentioned some of the early vintages. Is there a, a most memorable vintage for you, either positively or negatively or otherwise? Well, 83 was breakthrough. We had a ton and a half per acre. It was disappointing financially for vineyards that were selling grapes. But the wine was, uh, to this day, I think is one of Oregon's best. Um, Ken Wright and I snuck into Erath's cellar and tasted 83s out of the barrel. And that's what's responsible for Ken being up here. Um, 87 was the first year of Argyle. And um, this is when we were learning about vine balance and uh, harvest according to flavor. And, and it was a big yield. But, well, in the 80s, there's a lot of orchards in the area. And they clean cultivated. So the vineyard guy said, well, the cherry guys clean cultivate. We will, too. But along the way, we thought, these are growing like hell. Why, why don't we plant a grass that can kind of compete and affect the balance? So we got smart in 87, and we planted grass every row. And it turned out to be wicked dry. And it sort of made the wines dumb. It was a learning year. And with, from that experience, we learned to do cover crop every other row. 91 and 93 were years that were late. You know, the um, intended harvest date was October 10-ish, 5 to 10-ish, and we knew there wasn't much margin for error. You know, the last half of October when the curtain closes in Oregon, it slammed shut, you're done. There's no hanging on. And so we knew that the margin for error was slim. And that's when we were beginning to do the crop estimation and thin to a goal. And even with that, it was nip and tuck we're getting them right but both those years had 90s the first week of october that was like thank you god it saved the day and they were brilliant vintages um i could go on and on about you know they're like your kids everyone uh, like you bleed you bleed you know, sweat blood on every one of them um did you develop like a did you develop a preference for a certain kind of vintage? Did you like to prefer ones that were fairly easy and dry or did you prefer ones that were a little bit of a challenge? Well, 
two-part question, what wines do you like to drink versus which ones do you like to work in? Yeah, um, as a vineyard guy, you always want to get it off early and just, it's going to rain next week, I saw a bird. And, you know, you're always, I was always panicking. Um, so you like the early ones. 02, 06. In the context of global warming and climate change, 92 we began harvesting in August. And it wasn't another year until 15, 16 that was harvested in August. And at the time, in 92, we thought, ah, it's going to make California wine. But it turned out to be long-lived and Oregon-style-ish. It was a good wine. It was unfounded angst about that. 84 was one of the coolest years until we hit 2011. So um, there's going to be blips in the longer-term tr trend that is global climate change. You get blips, and you can't rest on your laurels and say, it's different now. We don't have to remember the lessons of old because they keep coming around. Um, other vintages. Oh, 99. We, we used to say great wines come from when they ripen right at the end of the season. We say that until we get an early year and they ripen before the end of the season, but that's true around the world, I think, that great wines come where they ripen towards the end of the season. Robert Druin used to say the vines kind of ripen at the same time as the grapes, you know. They, and um, so, yeah, late September, early October is wines I like to drink more, I think, um, versus the ones that, in the, on a day-to-day -day level, you like getting it done in the sunshine and without any worry, and um, so different answers. So what, uh, what accomplishments are you proudest of from your time in the industry? <clears throat> well, it wasn't my ideas or my money, but it was my execution of a lot of the improvements in Oregon viticulture. Of all of them, I was in the trenches with clones and with rootstocks and spacing and crop estimation and all that. Um, it feels like I had a hand in the evolution of this area. Just a hand, there was others. Um, that we kind of pioneered the viticulture. You know, the pioneer guys, the ERAS and Adelsheims and Letts, you know, they had businesses to run and marketing to do. And I watched the Blosser interview where they went to the legislature for, you know, I was in the trenches. I was the hired gun in, um, of making it all work. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my involvement in the live organization. It was one of the more rewarding things I've done. Um, I was a late comer to it, but joined them at a time with all my acreage at the time and the cachet that that provided. I, I joined, I think, in 2005, and I brought Druin and Stoller and Argyle. Bloop, oh, once here I am. And, um, and got involved and, you know, made some, had an influence in the standards and and where they became, I don't know, they were 35% of the acreage in Oregon and sort of a best practices group that um, can adapt as the world changes. And uh, so I was proud of that. And I've been involved in research efforts 
coming from the university early on, I wanted to keep a foot in that camp. And so um, I've been in various technical groups and research groups trying to get some overlap. I came to believe that industry and university were parallel universes, that they could trundle on indefinitely and not achieve much overlap unless someone made an effort. And it's been a little bit of a love-hate thing. I get frustrated and mad and go home to my cave until I get frustrated and mad and I charge back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had a good relationship with the university people and uh, currently involved with the North Willamette Technical Group. I'm a co-chair of that with Patty Skinkus. And it's grown. Used to be four or five people having a beer, but now 30 or 40 people show up and young tigers that are going to conquer the world. And like, really? <laughs> um, so it's served as a way to get some overlap. Industry people don't understand what university people have to do, go through. Their goal is to get p published in paper, and they have to go through certain protocol to achieve that. And Industry people, they want results. They want some answers. And without some effort at achieving overlap, we just trundle on in parallel. And what was it about live that eventually did bring you into it? And what was, what was the sort of the in, impact or input you had? I increasingly got questions about our environmental practices. Um, and I was sort of dug my feet in and said, don't worry about it. Look at all this razzle-dazzle stuff we're doing. And it didn't go away. We're marketing people and winemakers and salespeople kept pressing the issue. And I realized that I was painting myself in a corner. I need an answer to that question. And Live had a policy of third-party inspection. I realized, A, that I was painting myself in a corner, and that, B, it was, it was marketing. It wasn't nuts and bolts viticulture. Some of the inquiries I was getting, it was more about, what's our story? Mm -hmm. well, you're in charge of the story. I'm in charge of viticulture. Well, it wasn't that black and white. And I realized that I needed an answer to that question, and that the third-party inspection gave you credibility as opposed to just spouting off that I do this or I do that without any third-party inspection. So um, it was successful from that standpoint. When I continued to get questions, I go, third-party inspection and sustainable, and um, we talk about it. Um, it's a collaboration of industry university and environmentalists that talk about exotic pests and new challenges and what's the best solution to that. And it's not simple answers always. Yeah, so it was fun. Gave it legs. So besides the sheer size, I'm curious what are some of the, the sort of the major changes you've seen in the industry over the years from when you started t till now? 
Well, I talked about the first wave, the pioneer wave. The second wave was the entrepreneurs, risk takers. The third wave began really when St. Michelle bought EREF. And I met Jess Jackson of Kendall Jackson down at Argyle in the 90s. And the risk was considered too high for those companies in the 90s. Our yields weren't adequate. It was just like, uh, it's a little too high risk. So the third wave was more risk adverse companies with bigger tentacles began to locate. And Argyle was purchased by a big company that never would have invested here in the early days. Erath was purchased by St. Michelle. Uh, there's other examples. There's big business here now. And they have employee manuals and HR people and rules and regulations and policies that didn't have. And I don't have big exposure to it. But the fourth wave might well be venture capital people, investment types. And I don't know. But the pivotal point was when the risk was considered lower, not only did it attract bigger companies, it also attracted more mom and pops and young people. My son is getting involved. He was born and raised in this house and three or four years ago decided he was going to launch a brand. And um, I marvel at the young people showing up thinking there's a future here. Like, really? My son, one of them. And, you know, he got his hair on fire, going to go conquer the world. Great. Um, and so you have all kinds of players now. And there's a, every wine region of the world, really, that I've visited, at least my opinion is, you got 20% of the people that are making the reputation for the area. You get the scores and personalities. You got another percentage that, um, gets distribution and you know these big uh, not articulating this well um, in the early days well there's two kinds of models there's the high margin low volume and in the early days that's all there was because there wasn't any volume and I use the example that in California if you had too many grapes you could go sell them to Gallo that didn't exist in the early days here it, it exists to some degree today because we do have high volume low-margin producers. There's a symbiosis between the two models. The high-volume, low-margin guys get distribution out in America, and they sell on, on largely on price, but they get people to try it, and it benefits the 20% that are selling uh, the high-margin, low-volume. So they work together that um, didn't exist in the early days. So has it fundamentally changed the organ wine industry? Has it is it a different industry now? Now that you have the outside players in it? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to imagine what it was like. Um, 
again watching the Blosser interview about what he, I think he asked what was his goal. He said, "Make it through the year." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we used to have this expression, "Live to fight another hour." Um, it wasn't established. It was up in the air. It could have gone either way. It seems, and um, and. One of the pressures in the business is to sell direct to consumer. You know, that's all the buzz now is. And this area hadn't matured enough in those days. Sure, there were tasting rooms, but they got a housewife to come in after she dropped the kids off, and she might have to leave early to go take them to the dentist or whatever. That was a scene. Now you have young professionals in hospitality that know how to do this. And they are creating a, a destination place. You know, last fall when Oregon was written up as wine destination of the world, the world, that's changed. You know, when the Allison opened, I just went down and went, that was 2009. I'm like, really? Because it was unthinkable. But um, so the area's maturing. Um, they have, you know, Domain Serene, that fancy place they built, just the next hill over. And um, all these places, you know, they're hiring young, smart people. You don't build something like that and put out the sign and, and wait for someone to show up. You hire people, the same with the Allison, you know, they fill it up. And those people come from all over. And. My son does crazy business right here. People drive up the road. Someone from a couple from Chicago yesterday. They're staying at the Allison, and they made an appointment with him to taste wines. And I stayed too long, so I came in and introduced myself and chatted him up. And yeah, he's just turned forty, lived in downtown Chicago, staying at the Allison. And in that sense, it's way different. This was Hillbillyville. You didn't have restaurants, and you didn't have the Allison, and uh, I think it's going to continue to ch change. I read something on the Wine Board website this week about sales, Oregon wine sales increased 16% last year and 17% this year, when the average for all wines, domestic wines, was 2 or 3%. But even with those increases, there's still only 1% of domestic wine sales. So. Hard to tell where it'll go. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. What what do you think will happen in the next, say, 15, 20 years in Oregon wine? I think it'll continue to grow, uh, and maybe a lot. It may not be recognizable. If you're in California, for example, or if Australia, pick a place and you've had a business for a generation or two and you believe that your area is going to be challenged because of climate change, you're going to look around at what's sustainable for your business. And it's Oregon. 
number one. Number two, never mind there's a financial incentive that um, the price of land here, as much as it seems expensive to the locals, it's still cheap compared to other wine districts of the world. Part of that is because other wine places get higher yields than we do. But still, it's, it's an enormous difference. And um, yeah, the top, you know, Druin was here a long time ago, but it hasn't really gotten the play in the press, but it's pretty seismic as far as I'm concerned that two of his biggest competitors, Burgundian companies, have located here in the past two years or five years or whatever it is. Small to begin with, um, but giant companies with prestigious brands. And colleagues that have direct contact with them say they see this as a generational thing. They're not in a big hurry to jump in, but they're here. And um, they live in a world where land is $300,000 an acre. And they're not making any more. And, um, and two, they like the direct-to-consumer model and you can see that the area is maturing in that regard. Paris, or Portland is not Paris, but um, still. So you mentioned, uh, you've mentioned labor and you mentioned climate change. It's, those seem to be kind of the two big challenges wine in general, but Oregon wine is facing. How do you see those sort of playing out? I'm not too worried about the climate change thing in Oregon in terms of being too warm to grow Pinot Noir. Um, at some levels, I say bring it on. We're at 700 feet here elevation, which has sort of historically been on the edge of being too high. But in recent vintages, it's a sweet spot. And if it gets that bad, you go higher in elevation. Sure, existing vineyards, what's considered A-plus site now, might become B-minus because it's too warm. But there's plenty of land uphill, higher elevation, that historically has just been too high. Or coast range, my god, there's land out there. So if it gets warmer, it opens up more land. Uh, that could be planted, Pinot Noir. Um, the other part of climate change is um, weird events, extreme weather, and you can't predict it. But one of my biggest anxieties is if we got an Arctic event. I've seen it get down to four degrees right here, and it was back before we had grafted vines. But we had damage, and um, if it got much colder than that, um, it would kill the vines down to the rootstock, and it'd be a mess. It'd be a disaster. Do you think mechanization is, is sort of going to become more common as a, an answer to lack of labor? Yeah, I think machine harvest will. Um, I did a white paper on this subject. Um, where I looked at each job in the vineyard and analyzed it separate for its mechanization potential. And for the way we set up our vineyards, they're sort of high, high input, and there's limits to what you can do. Um, but you have to splice and dice it. Machine picking, yes, that's coming. It's here, and there'll be more of it. 
you know, Washington, for example, out in eastern Washington, 98% of what they do gets machine picked. There's no one out there. And um, so machine harvest will be, will be more and more of it. There's a way it's pruning, but it involves techniques that may compromise you on yield. So why would you shoot yourself in the foot for yield in order to save a few bucks on machine pruning, which happens in the winter when maybe you can't get the equipment out in the first place? So there is machine pruning in the world, um, but it has its limits in Oregon for those reasons. Um, you need scale to mechanize. The equipment's expensive, and there are people doing custom work. They buy the equipment, and they charge you to do it, and they charge good money to pay for their equipment and to pay for their time or you can own it. To own it, you have to have scale and you have to be committed to machine harvesting. You can take the harvesting unit off of the tractor and put on a sprayer and put on other attachments that are more efficient than what we do. But it's half a million dollars for the whole business. And Oregon doesn't have that scale, mostly. The bigger companies do, and they will. If you look at, you know, wine regions in France, they haven't had the, or the New World for that matter, in Australia and New Zealand, they haven't had the advantage of Mexico next door, and they managed. In Europe, okay, they have some gypsies and Turks, casual labor pool that they can scare up for harvest. But they use locals that historically haven't been an option here. But if we can figure out a way to make it more efficient for locals and more rewarding, maybe there will be. But that's how the world's done it. So what are you working on right now and, and sort of what are your current projects in, in the industry? Well, as you may know, I recently stepped back from Argyle after 30 years. And I've spent more time in this vineyard than I have in 30 years. It's what people aspire to, to go out and putz in your vineyard. And for a long time, it was, you know, hassle, sideline project. <laughs> we got to get this done. But um, I've been enjoying going out and putzing around my vineyard. Um, and the way it played out, um, everyone's busy with the current project at hand, which is this year, I hope to get insert myself in the off-season and look for a role um, that I don't currently have. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but um, new phase of life that I'm getting used to. Tell people for the first time in 40 years, I don't have a kid, a dog, a wife, or a job. Kind of getting used to it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, be easy to kind of knee-jerk and panic, but I'm not. And take it as it comes. And you mentioned your son's getting industry now. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what, what is his sort of goal, or what is he hoping to do? Well, he started a wine brand, and in the context of succession, I told him, 
that if he weren't interested, he's the only child, and if he weren't interested, a lot of people my age would be thinking about selling it. And um, since he is interested, the more the goal at hand is to be able to absorb all the grapes from this property and sell the wine to make the world go on. So you have to start somewhere, and he started small, and we continue to sell grapes to Purple Hands and to Argyle, and, um, but the goal is for him to gradually absorb all the production, and if he sells it at the right price, it's enough for a living. He can then go buy some extra grapes if he wants to. Um, he's got his hands full. Um, he's making the vineyard decisions, and he called the crew to come for harvest tomorrow, and so he's assuming management of the vineyard and selling the wine and making the wine. We're going to put up a little building, it sounds like, back here. Um, currently, he's making it at custom crush facilities where you have to pay money, and um, so he's going to borrow against his inheritance and put up a building. <laughs> and um, that'll make it more sustainable for him, I think. And um, no, it's gratifying. Um, they did some harvesting here the other day, and they were up here at, dusk, at dawn waiting for the crew and out, sitting out here, and I was inside having my coffee, but I could see the angst on their face. Are they going to show up? And I was like, la-di-da. <laughs> and so I took a picture of it and sent it to her, to his wife, like, it's all yours now. <laughs> and uh, she got it, and in turn, she snapped some pictures of me as the sun was coming up. It was sort of but I told him this, and it's rewarding to see you guys getting involved, and it has been my project, and to see it go on. Mm -hmm. So that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else that I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to talk about? Well, no. On the labor piece, um, it can't be overemphasize what the Hispanic labor force, their contribution has been. Um, and there were decades where I didn't speak English till I went home at night. I, you know, I, I lived it and breathed it with them. And they've made a real contribution. Um, along the way, you know, health insurance debate, I worked with them to get health insurance and for a while they had catastrophic policy, but they didn't have prescription coverage to get the medicine the doctor told them to get. And so we had that struggle until we finally got them good coverage. But I think that's something the industry could do better at. And um, I was the trustee on the first 401k program, you know, got them going on it and they've participated. And so I was heavily involved in insurance and benefits for them uh, along the way and um, they made a real contribution and no I think talked about the evolution and the technique of growing grapes and all the things that happened and uh, 
how the industry's changed. I think you covered it pretty well. Well, excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time yeah. and for your answers and thoughtfulness. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.